everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio featuring The Crew, where a former pro football player, a D3 all-star, and a guy who peaked in high school use strength and conditioning as an excuse to talk about everything but. Now here's John, Luke, and Tex. Drive on. Kick the wheels right before the hammer strikes. Make sure the levels fall from low. I got the girls shining in those so bright. Power Athlete Nation, what's happening? All-time crew favorite episode, possibly. Uh, and I'm not even like a fan. I wouldn't. Me coming in is obviously late to the party on this. So uh, let me get that out of the way. But t- today was a really cool experience. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, what's really just kind of surreal for me was rem- like I can remember going and picking up takeout and going into this Lanata Bay uh, video rental place, mm-hmm. and they had like all like the little like shelves, and they had the empty. Uh, boxes of like the movies and you would have to take them up and if they had it they would give it to you and if they yeah. didn't they would just be like I'll put it back it's mm-hmm. not it's all checked out and I remember specifically looking at that cover and renting Vision Quest and watching it with my brothers as a kid mm-hmm. and uh, you know and like the the quotable nature of that movie with the, with the pegboard and and just Everything, you know, with it, um, you know, growing up, I mean, Vision Quest, Weird Science, like all these movies. And then, you know, he does Full Metal Jacket, which is so iconic. Yeah. I mean, so it's kind of surreal to have him on. And, uh, you know, like really kind of interesting dude in that he, um, uh, I read something as I was kind of, you know, prepping for this. Uh, some you know there was an article that was written that he's known more for the movies that he's turned down than the movies he's done mm. which he's done some amazing movies and yeah. they were going through the list of movies that he turned down so pretty interesting yeah it man just cool cool to connect to the dude and like I don't know and and like it kind of feels like potentially a shooter McGavin scenario who's the actor that's shooter mcgavin not important everyone knows who shooter mcgavin is oh yeah but he's been like he's typecast into that role but totally embraces it he's like absolutely i'm like of course he's proud of the work he's in where this could be if you look back again through the lens of 2020 which we talk about you'd be like why would you do that modine blah 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 but he's like no man that was like well like you can't judge people no way uh, like of that day in the, those movies with the lens of today and I think like what, what's what's unique for me and, and especially my brothers Ed and Rob like even when I was telling them like hey we're going to have Matthew Modine on the podcast and my brother Ed was like like he's like that's crazy that you guys connected with him and I'm like yeah through social media like we tweeted at him he got on um, like the the fact that he's willing to come on and connect and uh, you know I, th- I think is um, as a uh, like not only as an adult, but as an artist, and all of a sudden here he is. I mean, he's sixty years old. The fact that people are still excited about things that you did thirty plus years ago mm-hmm. that are still relevant, and that you know, here's this new digital age of having podcasts which didn't exist. Yeah, and here's some some guys that enjoyed the movie that got to connect and get the star on and get some inside and just mm-hmm. um, you know just to have a really special uh, opportunity to discuss it with them. Tell me if this is a weak argument, right? So you have. <laughs> You have artists or actors, let's say actors, who play these roles and that were like, um, I guess, appropriate at the time. But now, like you said, like if they were to be, it would be, they'd be fucking burned at the stake if they 
put something like this together in common modern day. But like, look at technology as well. Look at the automobile. Look at how we used to manufacture automobiles with no seatbelts. There's no car seats for kids, yeah. and that's just what it was. So when I was when I was a baby, so do we say, oh, a- that was dumb? We should have never have done that. But that was a stepping stone to get where we're at today with like the technology that allows us to be incredibly safe in these missiles that we drive around in. You know what I mean? Well, like, when, when I was a kid, there was a bassinet, like a plastic bassinet that your mom would just put on the front seat and that was the baby seat and you just kind of were like in the front seat and like laying down yeah yeah laying down in a bassinet as a baby and your mother would kind of drive with one hand and make sure you were okay so like i <laughs> but why didn't we have uh like an an electronical or an electronic control unit that uh monitored all of the inertia in all four corners of the car and determined like the rate of a deceleration to deploy this airbag why didn't we do that because we didn't have that shit and we didn't know you know what I mean? So yeah. you're gonna so you're gonna vilify the engineers who developed the 1994 Pontiac Grand Dam that I rolled around in and had failed airbags. Dude, no, my 49 Merc had no seatbelts yeah. and had manual brakes. So you had to, as you yeah. were coming up, pump. you would pump and kind of do these control skids. You know, no like ABS. Any lock brakes you put on and it does control skids. I learned how to pump the brakes to do controlled skids to slow down. So what's weird for me today is if I hit the brakes and the any lock brakes are are, uh, are like start skidding um, because what they do is they unlock and lock and they kind of do this deal. As you know, driving around in your truck that doesn't have <laughs> any lock brakes, you got to feather, yep. feather it and you do little control skids. But that also put the onus on the driver to have a skill set. And I think the problem is, is we've gotten to the point where we don't require people to have a skill set for survival. Mm. Whereas if you're driving that truck, you better know how to drive this fucking big rig or you're going to just kill some people. Oh, you, I can't just Tesla automote it. The, uh, so maybe, are you guys picking up on my connection here? Like, do people actually look back on 80s movies, 70s movies well, and I, try to like they, ca- they delete it, it and cancel it? Because then they didn't Disney do that with some Simpsons episodes or something? Well, Robert Downey Jr., they tried, they like every six months, they try to rally up something against him for the blackface that he did in uh, um, Tropic, Tropic, Tropic Thunder, Thunder, which the irony of it is he was playing a spoof and making fun of, uh, of of that exact thing by doing the blackface. Yeah, we're saying the same thing. Yeah, he, he's yeah. like, and, and he was on uh, Joe Rogan and had a great one. He's like, no, we were poking fun at it. And the fact that people were trying to cancel me for poking fun just goes to show that they had never watched a movie. They didn't understand it. They're just reacting to something they see polarizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, and on that note, and Division Quest, and the whole thing that Matthew gets into here is the beauty of it's it's a young man's tale and journey. So it's an opportunity for this high school age. Most awkward age. Most awkward age from the male perspective and then taking the risks of what to say to chicks, girls, women. Uh, and Easy lemon pie times. <laughs> <laughs> lemon pie, Chris. <laughs> uh, yeah, but what to say that, oh, that, that didn't work. Yeah. Or they're not talking to me or... Hey, oh. no, like, yeah. So you're this, six, this what is opportunity. He, right? he's, he's like 17 and she's like in her 20s. Oh, yeah. No, he says, I'm 18, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. oh, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> that's yeah. Right. He does. But still, you're an idiot. All men know, I yeah. think. I mean, yeah. if you are denying that you are an absolute moron from 14 to 20, then you are like, why stop at only, 20? Do you know the only person I know who, <laughs> nice. would, who, who would not uh, co-sign on that? Nate Austin. No, I was great. No, everything was great. No, I'm the best. Had it all figured out. (laughs) Anywho, that's my, I guess that's my hot take on canceling any of this shit. Well, I mean, it's, um, I'll just tell you this. I'm forever 
sad that people have to grow up in this cancel culture Mm -hmm. because what they're effectively doing is they're creating safety guards, safety rails for what you think is funny and what is acceptable instead of letting you watch this. I think comedy prevails. And and then all of a sudden push it out. And uh, uh, Dave Chappelle does a great job curb stomping this. And the best is he's like, come out and try to cancel me. I will roast you and I you know and he like he he eviscerates these people Mm -hmm. and it's because it's this wokeness in this deal of like I have to virtue signal by pointing this out which like yeah I mean at at, at the time like if you watch Blazing Saddles there's no part of that movie where you're like this is totally right like you you laugh at how uncomfortable and how terrible Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. but like that's the nature because it teaches you the guardrails yeah pivoting hard can we pivot or do you want to add and the, I'm afraid of the risks that won't be taken. Yeah. Because you're afraid of the response from mm-hmm. external yeah. public versus like the, the risk of, you know, like th- yeah. for well, the case of the vision quest. It's the age old, the ship at Harbor is safe, but then what the hell were ships made for? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a great way to put what I'm thinking. Yes. So ladies and gentlemen, enjoy today's show. It is brought to you by the Power Athlete Radio Hotline. The hot line is, hot. it is hot, John. And it is open. That's right. We are fielding listener questions on anything. I mean, we're getting a lot of training questions. Yes. But go ahead, stump us. You know, I was listening to a bit on the radio that's like, I need advice, life advice. So maybe <laughs> are if you, we? Yeah. Oh no. Oh god. No, Let, like if let's somebody, do it. if like, somebody hey, needs, you life got advice? relationship problems. You want to know what to do with work? Are you trying to buy a vehicle? Things like that. We'll even answer those questions. That sounds that sounds outstanding. Uh, actually, that's what this show is actually all about: is well, solving problems with nothing to do with training, no nutrition, no strength and conditioning, <laughs> nothing. We well, want to solve. It's because your... we have an opinion about everything, Luke. And and no, we like, don't. Uh, we do. I, I I'm sorry. I have an opinion, and if I don't, I'll work through this podcast mm-hmm. and at the end of it formulate an opinion. Oh yeah. And even if I don't believe it, I'm going to sell you on it. That's right. So if you want our <laughs> totally informed opinion on anything, the number is nine two nine four six four four six four zero. That number again is nine two nine ing ing zero. Call us. Leave us a voicemail, and uh, we'll get to it. But and this actually this whole journey to Matthew Modine stems from the voicemail. It 100% yeah. does mm-hmm. because someone called in to get our opinion on, on, Vision, Quest, on Vision Quest, the movie. I gotta know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, was go. it because we brought up Vision Quest in a previous? It had to have been. Yeah, like a previous podcast. And I was, uh, I remember like the shock, the dismay that you guys had not seen Vision Quest. And I think there was something in the podcast where I was like, I can't believe you guys, this is Maybe. it. And see, I don't remember. So that was so far over our heads of mm-hmm. this non-existent because we... I didn't grow up with the wrestling culture at yeah. all. Yeah. Well, we weren't wrestlers, but that movie, man, was so iconic. And the hilarious part is on the cover, there's nothing about wrestling. It's just him right. holding the girl. And then on the back, I think there was like a picture of Madonna. And we were like, ooh, Madonna's in this. Yeah. And, and there the, was like- uh, The preview is nothing to do with wrestling yeah. either, which to, to Matthew's point in the podcast, it's not, it's not intended to be a wrestling movie, but it has, like, I think that's where it has landed. But it is the quintessential wrestling movie. I think it it's is. It's one of the best sports movies. It, it, it possibly. And it, it the hilarious. The checklist. And we argued because there wasn't even a genre back then in the 80s mm-hmm. for, for sports. sports movies. Right. So on the show today, we are, as you can probably tell by the enthusiastic Giddiness. banter of this well, intro. Andy takes some nice jabs at Tom Cruise, which I like. Oh, that was so cool. I do like, and we'll save you. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Matthew Modine, Star of Vision Quest, and Full Metal Jacket is where we spoke mostly about. But a, a pretty accomplished oh, yeah. TV 
uh, film. He, he was and, in the and, first season of uh, Stranger Things. He was in mm-hmm. Weeds. Uh, he was in Any Given Sunday. He was also in Dark, uh, Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Dark Knight. And then also, little known, uh, he was in Memphis Bell, which is another uh, kind of a World War II mm-hmm. B-52 bomber movie, which with like Harry Connick Jr., yeah. which was an excellent. Um, Eric Stoltz was in that as well. And he's done a lot of like uh, his own uh, production directing I, I'm totally unaware of it. I'm now probably interested in because this was such a great discussion. Uh, also some stage work too. So yeah. he's done some some uh, live acting stuff as well. Um, Matthew Modine on the show. Should we get to it? Let's do it. Go. Well, Matthew, hey, we want, first off, thanks a ton for hopping on the podcast and for you know engaging with us on social and and uh, throwing out throwing out the challenge putting us through the gauntlet to get a few uh, a few likes on that tweet man that was so that was to, fun right you, you gotta you gotta earn it you can't just get it for free that's right dude people don't uh people don't respect or they don't honor free stuff so you got to work for everything a little bit and it makes it much more uh just a better experience that's actually very true, isn't it? Yeah. It's true about just about everything in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, what I did like was the banter of what I would like to call Twitter douchebags that were trying to interject and jump into this thing with, you know, the grammar police. It was, uh, it was pretty funny, the back and forth. <laughs> Wait, what happened? <laughs> well, uh, like somewhere somebody imagined that there was a, um, a slight, like, I want to say it may have been like a missing apostrophe in something that Power Athlete tweeted. And then, of course, you know, that's the way you get value in Twitter oh, is God. to jump on small, like nuanced, nuanced um, errors. Yeah. And uh, at that point, I saw it and was like, this ain't happening. Oh, and gosh. so we started jumping on these dudes. And I appreciate Matthew's kind of candor on holding back as I'm just going to try to stomp <laughs> a mud hole in these guys. <laughs> I think it was it was actually my error, wasn't it? I think I had a typographical error, you know, and maybe I was typing too fast or not wearing my my glasses. How <laughs> dare mistake. you? How dare yeah, you? How oh dare. my goodness! I, I know Twitter is is the place of perfection. I, <laughs> I've uh, I've never seen people glob on to like small like errors that you know i mean obviously people are on a smartphone you're typing fast like i know my brain constantly misses words and i don't necessarily proofread everything yeah and then they jump on this stuff as you're admit like like you omitting the mm-hmm. is somehow discredits everything you've done in your yeah. entire life it's weak <laughs> it's weak yeah no it's uh, you yeah. know, um, I can only imagine doing your job, um, you know, being an actor, Hollywood, the whole deal now with uh, social media. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coming from obviously a time when, you know, like print media and, and, you know, junkets and all that, you know, was going through or through the 80s and the 90s and then into this new millennium. I mean, it's got to be just a extremely different environment. So it is it is very it is very different. And there's lots of things like like this and uh, which is a wonderful thing I, because it gives you an opportunity to interact in a way uh, that is less structured and controlled. You know, th- those kind of press junkets, there would be a, a, a several PR people and they would be very careful to to structure it in a way that uh well that was just structured let's say and and uh you oftentimes don't have any kind of real uh conversations and um uh, this this is an opportunity to kind of pull the veil down and uh 
exposes the fact that we're all just human beings. We we all make mistakes, like the Twitter mistake that we just discussed. <laughs> Which is, and, you know. uh, uh, Yeah. Um, the funny thing that comes from Twitter to me is that the people's perspective. By the way, is that there's a little fountain. I'm in Los Angeles right now, and there's a fountain in this house's courtyard mm -hmm. that I'm staying. I just thought and you were in maybe, the bathroom. Maybe it sounds like I'm peeing. Yeah, maybe I was I thinking go. that's a really long pee. I was like, man, this, <laughs> this Matthew Modine's got some strong stream. <laughs> it, it, I'll go. I'll go back inside. Where uh, Where are you at in LA? Venice. Oh, you're in ah, Venice. I cool. I grew up in Palos Verdes. Oh, that's nice, Palos Verdes. You you were a high roller. Yeah, no, I, my parents bought their home there in 1966 for about twenty eight thousand dollars. Oh no! Yeah. Did I lose you? Uh, no, we got you. Do you have us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of faded out there for a minute. Yeah, um, I I said I'm, my parents I, bought their house there in 1966 for about twenty eight thousand bucks. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, Venice, Venice was. Uh, I grew up in Imperial Beach down by Tijuana. Oh yeah. And and Venice was an awful lot like like that town. You know, a border town, kind of rough and tumble. Uh, both Venice and Imperial Beach had motorcycle gangs and a lot of racial violence. And uh, yeah, that was that was where I grew up. IB. Nice. Yeah. And no, I so, I know the area well. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys that worked for us, Ben Oliver's from there. Oh wow! Yeah, small world. So yeah, and then it's where I be. It's it's where I became an environmentalist because uh, it was right in my face that um, the beach that I surfed at was closed about twenty days of the year when I was in high school. And now it's closed about one hundred and fifty to two hundred days of the year. Uh, I don't because know Tijuana if has I, grown into such a big big city. Oh yeah. And and the, they st they still don't have a, a appropriate sewer system for mm -hmm. for a city of that size and just like the L.A. River kind of dumps into the Santa Monica Bay, the Tijuana River dumps into uh, the the ocean and the current goes north and that spoils Imperial Beach, but they, it goes all the way up the coast to La Jolla and you're seeing cancers and sea lions and uh all, all kinds of horror from from uh the human human waste and human uh detritus that comes from automobile tires from antifreeze all the way you know down to dog and uh, dog poop and urine yeah I, you know? I don't think that necessarily has to make you an environmentalist i think that just has to make you not an asshole yeah <laughs> You know, like, I mean, hey, like I, I, dude, I grew up at the beach. I grew up surfing and like, I remember, you know, all of a sudden we'd have storms, uh, you know, a bunch of rain and all of a sudden they closed the beach because, you know, the water was, you know, toxic and, you know, all these different, uh, you know, things that you could get by going in. And, uh, like, I just kind of figured like, like there's nothing environmentalist or activist about that. It's mm -hmm. just like, take care of the planet. Don't be an asshole. Yeah. It's a shame that it has to like. You got, you, you it's just not common some, sense, well, common well, courtesy, yeah. man. It's, you know, Roger, one of our buddies out there, whenever we would go to the beach with him, he would always say, Hey, this is our beach. Like that was his big thing. This is our beach. Clean up our beach, you know? And we would all like kind of pitch in yeah, and help always clean pick up, up trash after the assholes who just leave their trash out, man. And it's just, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. We lived down on the beach in Newport and uh, down at the wedge. And like, I remember, you know, in the mornings getting up, taking my dogs for a walk and just picking up just endless amounts of like Carl's junior bags and just shit that people would leave and think like yeah like why do you want to come down here and just make this place look 
awful. You know, one of the most beautiful pieces of coastline in the world, and all of a sudden you just want to leave your crap. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that makes you an environmentalist. Just kind of makes you a human. Well, it makes you conscious of the environment. Let's yeah. say. Yeah. 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 For yeah. sure. Hey, uh, and, um, I'd, uh, uh, did, I had a question. Just, just. No. I just have one question because you said the the wedge. Did you body surf the wedge? Uh, I have body surfed the wedge, uh, not on the historic when days when, like, you know, people would drive from hundreds of miles to come see the wedge break. But yeah, no, I'd body surf the wedge, and we'd. Uh, you know, we'd done it for years and, uh, you know, if, yeah. as long as you're good, I mean, it kind of reminded me of like, uh, Sandy's or Makapu. If you've been to Hawaii, you know, just big shore break and, you know, real short ride. But, uh, I saw a lot of people get pounded and, uh, well, what a ride, man. Oh yeah, man. That's the Have most you been exciting. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's the most exciting body surfing place I've ever been on the planet. I mean, cause it, 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 it happens so quickly and kind of violently that there's almost no wave and then suddenly there's a 15 foot wave and you're sliding down the face of it yeah. and you've got to get out of it before it breaks because it's a, as, as you pointed out, it's a short break and you'll break your neck. Oh yeah. And, and people get yeah. messed up all the time. I mean, I remember on big days, uh, like I never went out when it was like peak peak. I'm not going to bullshit you on that, <laughs> but we went out on big days. And, uh, even on those days, I remember, uh, you know, obviously you remember the traffic trying to get on the peninsula would be backed up for miles, people trying to get down there. And all of a sudden you hear the sirens when somebody would just get pounded and, uh, dude, people used to get messed up. I mean, dudes would have a few beers and say, I can do this mm-hmm. and, uh, having mm-hmm. no experience. And all of a sudden they go take off on that wave and they take off straight, not realizing that they're going to just make some, you know, pearl and beach and yeah. then just get fucking yeah. pounded. Yeah. I'd kick around in the yeah. waves about, you know, 200 meters, 200 meters North of there, <laughs> which were like, still would chew you up. And like, in fact, I messed my shoulder up. Remember that like a year I was down and out with a sh- banged up shoulder from just jumping into a wave and it chewing me up and slamming me on the ground. And I'm like, and they're, they're one tenth of the size of yeah. like, what was uh, but, cooking over in the wedge. But a lot of that is growing up. I mean, I remember as like little kids, you know, four and five years old, like growing up in PB, we would surf um, like Haggerty's and Red Beach and, you know, all those different spots down there. And, uh, um, you know, you just kind of learn how to do it. And then all of a sudden, after you take a bunch of pounding as a kid, like we did junior lifeguards and it just became kind of a part, part of the deal. But when we moved down to Newport, it was uh, seeing those like older dudes that had been surfing it for like 30 years come out and just tear it up. And you're like, wow, that dude's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I got lucky. I some friends of mine, their family was a little bit, you know, they were a little bit wealthy and could afford to take a house there for the summer. And when I was, my dad was a drive-in theater manager, and there was a movie called The Summer of '42, and it was about this young kid uh, uh, having sex for the first time with this older woman, kind of like Vision Quest. Um, but it was in the summer of 42. Her husband was a soldier and he dies. And, and that, that when she gets the news, this boy had been flirting with her all summer long. And uh, in, her, in that moment of vulnerability, their relationship is consummated. And when I was staying at my friend's house that they'd rented in Newport Beach, that summer was my summer of 42. It just... Oh. There was something so amazing. You remember, I'm older than you guys, but there was places where you could play air hockey. It's still there. And yeah, it, 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 the fun zone. It was bef- yeah, it was pinball machines. It wasn't you know video games. It wasn't Pong and 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 Donkey Kong and Pac Man. It was before that. But it, but man, 
what a magical summer that was. I think that there was a, there was a bar down there that was, I think, called the Summer of 42. Wow. Uh, it, are you thinking Class of 47? Uh, class, thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you how bad my memory is. It was called Class of 47. And I think that uh-huh. was there. I mean, they'd been there since the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, because I've only gone there a couple times, and there was a gal there who bartended who also was a waitress at Cappy's, uh-huh. which I frequented Cappy's with old Nate Dog on uh, PCH whenever we would show up to the gym and be like, Today's pancake day. <laughs> let's just go to Cappy's instead of work out. <laughs> so, oh yeah, that's right. Class of '47. Yeah, mm-hmm. that place. Uh, I used to go there with Tom Tobin, who was my old neighbor, was who was uh, claimed to fame was he was the youngest little rascal. Ah, okay. And so he was still living on the residuals. He had to be in his <laughs> 80s. And he was like, obviously, he's like, I've never worked. I was the youngest little rascal. And I necessarily couldn't prove it. And I didn't disprove it. And I just kind of liked the story. <laughs> you roll with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's not something I think you'd lie about. I know. <laughs> That's an interesting one, right? It's well, like, well, well pre-Google, he could well, get yeah. away with it. Well, think about that. Like, how would you... How would you check that pre-Google, like yeah, pre-internet? Yeah, in yeah. the 90s. So he probably rolled it. And now I'm thinking about it. Like I never actually ever looked it up just because I just kind of thought he was an old boozer. And Well, now, John, we have the power. <laughs> Maybe we can spend a day validating. <laughs> <laughs> but it gets us. I'm not sure. But um... Yeah, I don't know. Oh, there okay, you go. I turned my video on now because I, when I was speaking to you, I was having a bowl of oatmeal. Oh, okay. Because nice. I, I got to... I got to run out when I'm done with you, so I had to get some food down my neck. Nice, oh, appreciate it, man. Uh, uh, hey, I, um, really, the, the uh, impetus for having you on and really how this whole thing got started was um, when I was, you know, I'm 44, so when I was pretty young, on Friday nights we would go get takeout and we could go to this uh, movie place to rent movies, and they only had was the sleeves. So you like, you know, read the sleeve. There's no previews. We don't know anything. I'm probably right. you know eight nine years old, and Vision Quest was one of our favorite movies to rent uh, to the point when we got older, we ended up having a pegboard. And every gym that I've had since then has had a pegboard. Fact. Wow. And uh, it, was a, it was a big movie for my brothers and I, um, you know, the whole like, uh, you know, the quotable nature of like, you know, the shoot and everything. And uh, so we started doing movie reviews just to kind of have fun Friday afternoons, bullshit about some movies. And these two dicks had never seen Vision Quest. No, guilty. <laughs> right? Matthew, and, I'm guilty, man. And, uh, I'm to like, the point where like, I almost rebelled against it because my best buddies in college were wrestlers, so it was their, I mean, dude, it, it was like, their inspiration. It was Madonna's uh, debut, <laughs> right, in the bar, yeah. like Matthew Modine. Yeah. And, and at the time, which was funny, we thought that the uh, Carla was like old. It turned out she was 26 in the movie. Yeah. We were like, oh, God, okay. But as kids, we were like, this is great. Like, this is this whole piece so mm-hmm. I uh, we're like hey I need you guys to watch Vision Quest we're going to discuss it mm-hmm. so these guys get on and watch the preview which is does no justice does no justice for the movie they're like this preview is awful I'm like this isn't what the movie's about <laughs> so we end up taking a day at work watching the movie and then we did a podcast about it mm-hmm. and uh, they were like at the end they were like it's amazing I can't yeah. believe I can't believe I've never seen this movie yeah, for, our th- for our listeners Tex and I like instilled a bit of theatrics, you know, doubt throughout the review. Like, I don't know about this. Oh, and then I'm, it like comes just, to the close and it's like, oh no, this is like, you have yeah, to I recommend this movie to everyone. I admonished them for about 90 minutes <laughs> on like yeah. this movie. And when we were kids and still to this day, I mean, the you know, the hero's journey, boy coming to age, you know, um, you know, you brought up the summer of 42, but also like, you know, the graduate, this kind of, uh, you know, 
meets older girl, takes him under, you know, loses girl, goes and fights his bully and takes on. It's such a classic tale. Mm-hmm. And for us, I mean, it was one of our favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. So I, I was, it was really fun to be in the movie. Um, I, I had already been, already gotten married and I, uh, I didn't want to do the movie because I had just graduated from drama school and I, I was trying to be a very serious actor. And I felt that this movie was, um, you know, kind of teenage pulp. And and my wife said, no, it's a good movie. And so she's one who's really responsible for me saying yes. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, I was just out of drama school and uh, <clears throat> I, you know, when you move to New York City and you're studying acting, you have those references. I mean, the, the heroes of mine at that time were Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, you know, Taxi Driver and, you know, the movies that Al Pacino had made. They, they were just amazing people. And uh, and then those people that came before, you know, obviously, you know, like James Dean and Marlon Brando. And so when you're going to drama school, you, you take all that very seriously. And I had never drank coffee before I moved to New York City. I never smoked before I moved to New York City. So these all felt like prerequisites to becoming an actor was that you have to smoke and drink coffee and become a really miserable, you know, like brooding artist. And it's all <laughs> bullshit, but it, 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 it's... <laughs> It's, it's something that you kind of have to go through. And I, I was in my brooding artist uh, phase and, uh, you know, di- didn't, didn't think, I thought my talents were above a movie like Vision Quest. And, you know, it's probably the closest movie to who I am as an individual, uh, you know, watching, watching that film in, in retrospect. Um, the, the, it, it, it's it, there's re- I'm really not acting at all. I'm oh. I'm reacting to the things that that are happening to that character, you know. Uh, because when you're wrestling, anybody who's ever done that sport knows that you're always wrestling against yourself. You're always wrestling against what you're willing to endure, how far you're willing to push yourself, and those were all things that I had to do as an as an actor in order to play that part because you can't pretend wrestling people mm-hmm. would say to me wow when frank jasper the guy that played shoot threw you on the mat and your head bounced how did you do that and i said well <laughs> he threw me on the mat and my head bounced you know <laughs> there, there, as, the, as i say there's no acting involved and and then just getting i, I was so terrified of that pegboard that uh, you know, as, as you saw in the film, it's not one pegboard. I think it might be three. Yeah. They stacked stacked one on top of the other, and that was a mountain to climb as a, as a as an actor, as a human being, to be able to get up that pegboard. And so I I trained like I'd never trained before in my life uh, for that film, just so I wouldn't look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those kids that are in the movie. Uh, that are that are the background and, and even Michael Schofling. Michael Schofling was state champion from Pennsylvania. Uh, so th- those were real wrestlers, you know, and and every time I thought, I, th- I think I really know how to do this now. They would just break me in half and school me and and uh, show me that I had a long way to go before 
I, I could, uh, you know, uh, compete with them. So, so how, how long did you have to train into that role? You know what I mean? As, as you, let's say the early stages of taking on this movie, did you know that you were going to have to get down and dirty and start learning the t- a little bit of the technical components, wrestling, get into the gym and things like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. They sent me, I, I feel like it was two months before we began eight weeks before we began filming, but it may have been six or seven. Uh, but it was serious. You know, I, I went to Spokane, Washington, uh, the guy that's the referee at the end of the movie, his name is Cash Stone. And he, he was the uh, wrestling coach at, at the high school and just a real tough son of a bitch. And, and he, he was the pers- person who put me through, through the training process with all the wrestling. And, and there was another guy named Chris Collins who, who worked, uh, he, his claim to fame is he had worked with Sylvester Stallone on uh, Rocky uh-huh. to get Rocky, to get Sylvester Stallone into uh, that, that crazy shape that he was in. And so when I wasn't wrestling, I was, lifting and training with Chris Collins and when we weren't wrestling or training we were running and uh it was exhausting it was it was absolutely and and that that carried uh throughout the film it didn't it didn't stop once we started filming well the uh uh, you look tired like uh like the whole thing where you're you know on 400 (laughs) calories and you're like in the uh uh like plastic like uh, having you know, uh, trained at a high level and done that, like you could see that like, you know, there's this physical, almost like little slightly little drained. Tra- yeah. And uh, like yeah. uh, going back and rewatching it, it looks accurate. Like it, it like you wouldn't know. And I think you were, uh, how old when you made the movie in your twenties? Yeah. 21, I think. Yeah. 21 too. So you were slightly older than yeah. these kids, but like it, it all kind of fit in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it's still, I mean, I, I guess you can really judge, uh, you know, the impact a movie has by how long it stays relevant. And even though yeah. there's probably some things in the movie that today, uh, people, you know, in this woke culture or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, might look back and be like, Ooh, I can't believe they made that. And I think you made a great point. You're like, you couldn't, like you can't judge movies of the past with the lens of today. Right. And I think I'm paraphrasing no. you on that, but that was a good no. point that I heard you what, on a quote you made. Yeah. What is, uh, it, it actually just to go back to that for a second, I was trying to gain weight the entire movie because I was training so hard. I was, I was burning so many calories that I was, I was disappearing. So they were pounding me with food, trying to get me. And, and because it would have looked ridiculous by the time I, I wrestled shoot at the end of the movie, uh, if, if, I, if I didn't look like I was in the same weight class. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that he, we were supposed to be 168. And uh, I think Frank Jasper was over 200. Oh, yeah. I mean, that guy was a... He, well, he was a bodybuilder. He was a, yeah, he was a beast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was like one of the things we poked fun at is because we like we're dude. There's no with- way this kid's in high school. So like like when he's walking up with like the uh, the the log on his log. shoulder, you see his cap, shoulders, and everything, and they're like, "This kid is in high school." I'm like, "Yeah, you guys obviously didn't but go to the same high schools I went to." But when you're a kid and oh. watching that, like in the '80s, you know that dude. Like there's so much. Like he, of course he is. You know? it, uh, so when I was a little kid, I mean, I'm, I bet you I was probably 10 or 11. We were at the beach and uh, we were surfing that day and we were like waiting for my mom to come pick us up. And as we were sitting there with the boards, we watched Lyle Alzado. 
walk by. Mm -hmm. And this is when he was at his like 320 pounds, like the biggest. His chest was so big, he's wearing the string tank top. And I remember we were like, like everybody stopped because we thought he was like a monster that was going to eat us, like the Incredible Hulk in in like real world. (laughs) So like the uh uh the shoot was kind of a similar kind of this mythical creature yeah you know oh, yeah yeah for sure and i guess there are i'm trying to think back of like there were kids in high school that were like more matured but that dude was jacked i mean we didn't have any kids in high school that was that because he was in his 20s i think i looked up like in his later 20s uh-huh. and was a bodybuilder yeah. and they had to have him diet down for the just <laughs> it was great movie was, magic baby yeah it's movie magic yeah. so then you make that and then uh, I did read that you turned down the role for Top Gun uh, because mm-hmm. of like, hey, you know, it was a little too much of glorification of war. And then you get in and make uh, probably another one of my most favorite movies, Full Metal Jacket, which yeah. uh, like, you know, Stanley Kubrick made what, like three movies in that last 20 years. But I mean, it's just has become so iconic. Um for so many different reasons. I mean, and I did read that it's still to this day one of the best recruiting films they've ever had for the U.S. Marines, <laughs> which I thought was, there was irony because, yeah. you know, here's Top Gun, it glorifies war, I don't want to make it, and then you go make this fucking incredible realistic movie that becomes a better recruiting tool than Top Gun would, was ever. Yeah, which always astonishes me that when somebody says, oh, I watched Full Metal Jacket and went and joined the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it baffles me. Um, I, I guess, you know, the film doesn't comment on war. The film doesn't comment on the, on the military, on the, on the recruit, I mean, the, the, uh, the boot camp. It just presents, uh, presents it. And th- that's kind of the genius of Stanley Kubrick is, is to avoid commenting. Because if we, if we look back at like, Platoon, which came out just yeah. before Full Metal Jacket and won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Yeah, yeah Oliver um, Stone. It, it's filled with commentary. It's filled with Oliver Stone's perspective on, on war and, and its effect on young people. Um, Stanley Kubrick avoids that comment and just presents it. If you look at the uh, recruitment films for the United States Marine Corps, in that period in 1968, 69, uh, 67, I don't remember what year our film takes place. 67, maybe? The Tet Offensive? Yeah, I think uh, 68, yeah. yeah, 67, 68, 68 yeah. 68, yeah. In Da Nang. Um, <clears throat> if you look at the recruitment film, the opening of Full Metal Jacket, the boot camp with Arlie Ermey, who's just brilliant, uh, and Vince D'Onofrio. And of course, Arliss Howard. Um, it, it, what Stanley did was just kind of recreate what exit, what already existed, uh, but it, but gave it a little bit of a narrative with the with the drill instructor, you know, and, and putting the putting the recruits through the uh, through through boot camp. Um, it's it, he he leaves it to the audience to make a decision about. Uh, about what their reaction to to that is. It's a very hard thing to do as a filmmaker. You know, it, when, when we watch documentary films, we think, wow, look, look, look at this amazing story. But you always have to understand that when somebody makes a documentary film, uh, they have a perspective and they have a point of view. They have an objective when they when they make their documentary films. Um, it's it's uh, 
you know, that they're, they're trying to tell you something that they think is an injustice or they want to, you, you know, give you their personal commentary on the story. Um, it's, uh, I, I think that way also about journalists. When, when you would be doing an inter interview for a magazine or a newspaper, um, oftentimes I could tell more about the, the person who wrote the story than the, than the subject that they're writing about. Mm -hmm. So he just presents um, so it. I mean, the, the amount of quotable material, I mean, it's probably the first time I'd ever heard the term reach around. <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> amount of like, of one liners that Ermi drops, like it's uh, it, like it to, to this day. I mean, I still hear people quote that oh, yeah, and like, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing. And then I, I also read, which I think is interesting for Stanley Kubrick, uh, who was such a detailed guy that over 50% of those lines were ad-libbed, that he just let Ermi just go and he had done the job and was more than, just tell us what you need to do. And not on camera. They weren't ad-libbed on camera. They were, it, it, that, that, Stanley was more structured than that. Um, he, <clears throat> Lee Ermi auditioned all the people that were in the in the film, the soldiers in Vietnam and the soldiers that were in boot camp, and he would line them up and and be a drill instructor and ask them questions and uh, everything was videotaped so Stanley could pick the people that were going to be a part of the the movie. You know that there would be uh, deep background or, or or close background, the people that would be sur surrounding the actors. He wanted to be able to pick interesting people. And uh, did I lose you? No, Fuck. we got you. No, we still got you. We just got your mugshot. Um, there you go. Um, so Lee Army was auditioning those people. And during that process, Lee Army was uh, improvising because he wasn't saying lines from the script. And when Stanley looked at the auditions for those for those background performers and heard the things that Lee Army was saying. Uh, there was another actor that was playing that part named Tim Colcheri and Tim Colcheri ended up being the uh, the door gunner in the helicopter when we're in Vietnam. Oh. The, the scene that how do you shoot women and children? You don't lead them he, so much. He, yeah. Yeah. So that Tim Colcheri, he actually I were I, on the I did a season of weeds and Tim Colcheri plays a drill instructor in that episode of, uh, of Weeds, mm -hmm. you know, the, the TV show sure. Weeds on Showtime. Yeah. But uh, when Stanley looked at the, the auditions, he, he heard the things that Lee Army was saying, like, you know, you look like a kind of person who could suck a golf ball through a garden hose, <laughs> um, th that he said, well, uh, this is the real deal. I mean, th th this, I have to, do the unfortunate thing of firing Tim Colcheri and hiring Lee Army to take over that person's job. And then uh, Leon Detali, who worked with Stanley Kubrick for uh, more than three decades, uh, had Lee sit down and, and tell him everything that he'd ever said or heard through the United States Marine Corps. And uh, Leon says that it was 300 pages of, <laughs> of, of uh, dialogue and then then they went through it and picked out the best things and and incorporated those into the into the script but when we were on set lee lee was not improvising lee was working uh. from from uh, you know from script and uh, he's just brilliant and he would have won the academy award had uh, 
Lou Gossett Jr. not won the Academy Award like a year or two before for playing the drill instructor in mm-hmm. Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah, the uh, age old, uh, yeah. I got nowhere else to go. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, what's so funny is, um, and I, I like I tell my kids about this, we would go and like my dad would be like, okay, hey, we're going to pick up. You guys get to pick a movie. And I got two older brothers. So we used to kind of go through and we, you know, we watched all of these movies. I mean, so it's it's pretty interesting now to look back. And I mean, my dad just let it. I mean, we, we watched uh, 1984. I remember it was 1983 was the year and we got 84 because we thought it was about what was in the next year. Uh, yeah. yeah. And we, you know. The one with, the, the one with John Hurt? Yeah. Yeah, the uh, isn't he amazing? John Hurt is such a great actor. And what's crazy is is watching that as a kid and being like, I don't understand any of this. And now looking back, but I mean, with uh, this movie and and um and then the other hilarious part is you were in the movie Any Given Sunday, which yeah. there's some irony in that. I was uh, I played in the NFL for ten years, and my rookie year in the NFL, before one of the games, I went with my parents and my girlfriend to go see Any, any Given Sunday. <laughs> and as the movie's wow. going on, they keep like looking over at me and I'm like, what? And they're like, is it like that in the NFL? I'm like, not yet. <laughs> I want to find this <laughs> fucking so. team. Like, like, where is this yeah. team that has cheerleaders? So it was, uh, it was really funny as we were, as I was kind of going through your IMDB and going through and being like, oh man, like Memphis Bell we rented. I mean, just all this cast of, mer- of characters. But when we saw any given Sunday, I was like, shit, that one is kind of funny. Cause I remember the dude cuts, uh, cutting the car in half and being like, man, I hope I get to play on this team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that Lawrence Taylor, right? Yeah. Yeah. LT. Lawrence Taylor, he told me, he said, you know, Matthew, I never went looking for trouble, but it always found me. That's <laughs> what happens when you do a lot of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he, he kind of changed the game. The, the professional football players that, that were working on the film that I spoke to, they said that, uh, that those guys that played against Lawrence Taylor and the New York Giants, they said, uh, we would look at the schedule to find out when we were playing the Giants so that we could prepare for Lawrence Taylor, that he really changed the game. As a, he was a middle linebacker, right? Um, he, he was a lot, well, outside linebacker. And, um, outside linebacker. Yeah, I mean, where he really made his money was on the third down as the rush end. Yeah. The, uh, so I yeah. played with a guy named Sean Landetta, who was, uh, you know, when I got to the Eagles, he had been in the league 20 years, and he was the punter for the New York Giants. And he used to roll with LT everywhere because he liked women. LT liked to party and do drugs. And so they were kind of this natural, like, I'll be your designated driver just to catch whatever falls off the tree. Get the trickle. And the stories that (laughs) Lendetta would tell us about LT were like legendary stuff. Like it was just like, there's no way. And sure enough, um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of that stuff never comes to light as it shouldn't because uh, now I I don't know if history actually remembers that stuff in the same way. Yeah. Those professional football players that played against him said that you take the hardest hit that you ever got in your career, and that was every hit from LT, Mm -hmm. that that he just was such an explosive player. And, uh, you know, I I only played high school football, so I I know when I tried to step it up to... to, uh, to junior college, at Southwestern Junior College, that was that was the case was the hardest hits that i ever got in high school was every hit at, mm-hmm. at the junior college level and i guess by the time you you reach uh, that level of playing in the nfl it's just it's uh, it's something that that uh civilians can't appreciate and understand no way. The, yeah yeah I, i've stood on the sidelines in, in in new york at giant stadium and you know when you're watching football on television 
people are moving fast, but when you're on the field and you see a 250 pound man running as moving as quickly as they do, it is, uh, it's terrifying. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's no. unimaginable. Are you, I, are you a football fan, Matthew? Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. As I, the giants. So I've been through the good years and the bad growing up, uh, you know, in Imperial beach, I was a charger fan for a while. Uh, we lived in Utah for several years. As I mentioned, my dad was a drive-in theater manager and Utah didn't and still doesn't have an NFL team. So I, I, uh, I leaned into the New York Jets. I liked the Jets because of Joe Namath. And mm-hmm. um, there was a moment when I was an Oakland fan, you know, because of the <laughs> bad boys that, you know, I think when you're rebellious, 15, 16 years old, and that was Lyle Alzado, right? Yeah. He was, yeah. yeah Howie Long, Lyle Alzado, and those guys. Yeah. Those crazy years. I mean, those those fans, I, I don't think there's any fans in the NFL that are like Oakland Raider fans. Uh, I'll, I'll say the Philadelphia Eagles fans uh, when I played oh, in yeah. Philly. Something special. Uh, we, we used to stand there at TV timeouts and we would just watch the fights. Like these dudes just out there, just, you know, it's like negative five degrees, shirts off, just beating the hell out of each other. And we'd be like, I can't believe these dudes are fighting like this. The real warriors of oh, the yeah. NFL. And they're just out there slamming <laughs> beers at like eight, you know, seven in the morning and just kicking the shit out of each other and thinking, I can't, one, I can't believe you paid for these tickets. And two, I can't believe you guys are out there this violent about a game. It just, uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I always love playing against the Giants, especially, um, yeah. you know, playing against Michael Strahan and, and those type of guys. I mean, that's how you know exactly how good or bad you are is by playing against the best. Playing against the best, yeah. Which brings us back to Vision Quest. I mean, that was the whole, the whole purpose of, uh, of, his, of his journey with, uh, with Shoot, right? Was that it, it's, it's one thing to be the best you can be in uh in your weight class but why not try to go down a weight mm-hmm. and and uh wrestle somebody who's never been defeated mm-hmm. yeah the true test the true test of your your will of your talent of your skill well but i mean it's um like i feel like there's just this classic tale this classic hero's journey and everything and i mean I, you I, you know this in hollywood when you probably look at it but this idea where you know there's a challenge the trials and tribulations love one lo- uh love one love what lost and then back and then you know overcoming this insurmountable thing to you know be hoisted onto people's shoulders it's such a classic tale and um you know and especially like the coming of age tale with it that's why i think it's really lasted all over all this mm-hmm. time and i yeah i still enjoy watching it as we were watching it i'm like man i liked watching this when i was a kid and i still like watching it now i mean is it the yeah. uncontested wrestling movie is it i mean is it being contested by any other film i don't know but uh my brothers and i didn't wrestle but yet mm-hmm. when i told my brother we were like oh we did a vision on or a podcast on vision quest luke and tex hadn't seen it and he was like i can't believe like he was like <laughs> mortified mortified <laughs> And then when I said we were having Matthew Modine on, he's like, first of all, you should get me on there and get rid of these two dipshits and actually bring somebody that's actually seen the movie over the years. So, yeah, my brother's a, a defense attorney in Orange County, so yeah, he big Vision Quest fan. Um, you know what's interesting about that is uh, you mentioned Tom Cruise and Top Gun. Um, Harold Becker directed Taps, which was the movie that introduced uh, Tom Cruise to the world. You know, he he played that kid who goes crazy and shoots oh, uh, is, shoots people. From is that the uh, where he's in the uh, like the military school? Was that Taps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn and that's right. And yeah, so yeah, they they were that group of actors were having like a 
a method marathon of all of them, you know, trying to outdo one another, sleeping in the barracks and, uh, you know, that was ridiculous. The stories that came out of out of that movie. And but anyway, so Tom Cruise was in that movie and Harold Becker was the director and Tom Cruise, apparently, I don't know, was a high school wrestler and he felt that uh, Harold Becker should cast him to be loud and swing. And Harold Becker didn't even want to talk to Tom because he said that he's not right. He's not the right guy. And so I did, I did vision quest and, and, and I turned down Top Gun. So <laughs> there you go. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know why that's an important story. Uh, but, well, Tom um, Cruise, you know, there's just, no, no way Tom Cruise is in the 200 pound weight class, right? Uh, <laughs> what's he like? Five, four? And you put him next to shoot. He's going to look like a little like, cabbage patch doll. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, cause, cause you're pretty tall. You're what? Six, two, six, three. Three, yeah. yeah, six three. I'm starting to shrink now. Yeah, I'm starting to shrink. <laughs> so, it, like, uh, I mean, what's Tom Cruise like? Uh, a boot height five five? Uh, w- yeah, with boots on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so like, I, I I don't know how it would play it out. I mean, but he also did. Didn't didn't he do that a uh, high school football movie like in Pittsburgh? Well, he born on the Fourth of July. He was a wrestler. Well, no, but but there was another movie that he did where he was like, yeah, a, um, uh, inside moves. Uh, all the right moves. All the right moves. All yeah, right he did moves. all the right moves, and then he did risky business, and then uh, obviously, yeah. I. Uh, it's I, he was. I, come on, we got we got to tip our hat to him in risky oh, business. Yeah. He was good. No, oh, no, yeah, and that's by far his best one. I mean, and Rebecca De Mornay, who to this day still might be one of the the, one, the, the hottest <laughs> uh, co-stars. And then the other, like, when I realized that she was probably like eighteen or nineteen in that movie, mm-hmm. yeah, she was a rock star in that. Yeah, she auditioned for Vision Quest to play Linda Fiorentino's part, oh, and she man. was dating Tom Cruise. And you know, I, I had to do the screen test with her and Demi Moore, and I can't remember who else that they screen test. But Her- Harold Becker really wanted Linda because he felt Linda, you know, really had. Uh, you, you know, she was like a girl from Trenton, New Jersey. You know, a tough, tough broad. And Linda and Demi were kind of acting like tough broads. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, but I remember doing the scene. It was the, we the scene that we shot for the screen test was when Loudon is in the basement and says, "I, I don't know if we can swear on your podcast." No, yeah, you guys you can swear all you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he says, uh, "You know, you're fucking my teacher, Mr. Tanneran. Why don't you fuck me?" And Rebecca de Mornay punched me in the face and it was, <laughs> yeah, there was, you know, yeah. she punched me. Yeah. You're not supposed to really, it's called acting. You're not supposed <laughs> to really hurt the person. I mean, unless there's an agreement, like, I mean, we all grew up with Robert De Niro in the deer hunter, right? Sure. Sure. And Unbelievable. but there's an, there's an agreement that the actors have with one another, like go ahead and slap, slap me across the face. Or, you know, in that scene when they're playing Russian roulette in The Deer Hunter, or or Vincent D'Onofrio in Full Metal Jackets told Lee Ermey, uh, you know, just slap me across the face. He he he'd been witness to how many times I got punched in the barracks by Lee Ermey, who who couldn't really pull a punch, and we shot like him slapping him slapping me across the face. You know, when when I the what is it? 
Uh, Do you believe in the Virgin Mary? You know, and let me see your war face, yeah. all that stuff. Uh, I mean, we shot it 50, 60 times. And, uh, you know, Lee would try not to slap me in the face and then accidentally or accidentally punch me in the stomach. Um, I'm sorry, you know. And uh, but so and Stanley say it didn't look like a slap. It didn't look like he punched you. And I said, what are you talking about? The fucking guy punched me in the gut. And so so Vince just said, Lee, just fucking hit me across the face and let's get this over with. I don't want to do this 50 times. Just hit me. So Lee Ermey went to Stanley and said, Vince wants me to hit him. He said, really? He wants you to hit him? He said, yeah. He said, I doesn't want to do it 50 times. And so Stanley says, okay, hit him. <laughs> Let's do it 50 times. And, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, when you watch that scene, when, uh, mm-hmm. when he asks Vince, you know, your left shoulder, don't you know your left from your right? Which side is this? And he slaps him on the left side and he slaps him on the right side. He slaps Vince so hard across the face. You can see his, his hat spins around his head. Yeah. You know, it, it, it uh, um, so anyway, so Rebecca de Mornay, back to Vision Quest, uh, when she was auditioning, she fucking slapped me across the face when when I said that you're fucking my teacher. Why don't you fuck me? Well, yeah. little no one didn't know it was coming. Well, I was also going to say I didn't. I, yeah, there was no agreement made. <laughs> little known fact, uh, McQuilkin's been slapped numerous times for sniffing panties that same way. Mm. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've been on a vision quest before I even knew the movie existed. Yeah, yeah. he's <laughs> like, oh, wait, I'm not the yeah. only one that takes panties? And that John, is- it's a different generation for us. This is a sign of admiration of a young lady, you know? <laughs> what, is the, what is the sports guy that, that, that talked about vision quest? Do you guys know? Oh, Ryan. He's got a- yes, Ryan Rossillo. Ryan Rossillo, who, but who was the host of the show? It was, oh, a Bill uh, Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons. Those guys broke this movie down and talked about like the panty scene or the scene in the basement. You're fucking my teacher, mm-hmm. and they. But, but looking at it, it, you guys talked about this when we first started talking about looking at Vision Quest through the through the lens of today of 2020. And, you know, they're always talking about remaking Vision Quest and you can't remake it no because way. you you have to change all of that because it's all unacceptable, inappropriate, you know, politically incorrect things that Loudon says and does. And so that the innocence, I mean, it's hard to think that in 1984, 83, the world was any more innocent than it is today in 2020. But it was. And you could do and say things then that you would go to jail for today. Yeah. Well, well look and at Mel Brooks. I mean, uh, Mel Brooks came out and said, I couldn't have made History of the World. I couldn't have made Blazing Saddles. I mean, his yeah. uh, none of these movies could be made today because of the yeah. lack of sense of humor. And just, I mean, to this day, like Blazing Saddles like and uh, History of the World, I mean, those are classic movies. And he, he's like, I'm out of business. This, uh, yeah. th- this 2020 and this whole deal is basically put anything that I thought was funny in the way I can uh, make a movie out of business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did. I did love the awkwardness of the, the truck driving scene when y'all are going to, Oh my gosh, great grandfathers and the, the hand where she's like big hands. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're like, like, yeah, these big hands. (laughs) Oh, oh, this this way. That was, that was, that was a That was probably the only scene that was added to the movie. And it was the, the writer, Daryl Ponison 
who had written one of my favorite movies, uh, The Last Detail, with Jack Nicholson and Randy Quaid. And I can't remember the African-American actor that was in it. But it, The Last Detail, it's an awesome movie. And mm -hmm. Daryl Poneson had written the screenplay. And he wrote the screenplay for Vision Quest, adapted it from Terry Davis's book, which is really terrific if, for your readers, I mean, for your listeners that maybe want to learn more about Vision Quest. Um, but he said that, you know, we got to do a scene where Modine shows his hands. And I was like, why? Why <laughs> Why do we have to do a scene where I show my hands? And, you know, it's that that mythological thing about people with big shoes, big feet and big hands that they, they have big, you know. Gloves and shoes. <laughs> yeah, big yeah. feet, big Ex shoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that, that scene was improvised and made up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we were out on the road. Yeah, what's unfortunate for anyone who would go into this thing and try to look through the lens of 2020, you know, like that, I mean, it's just, it would do such a disservice because that's what, in my opinion, you know, in my breakdown is, uh, watch all the films from that era. Like, there's a version of this in, in almost all of it. And it's what makes it such a, like fantastic watch. It's you well, know. What's weird is everywhere you go, you order two pieces of pie and a cup of coffee. That's, how, the, I, that's, what, <laughs> that's how I go to sleep at night. Like all we always that thought stuff. that was so weird. It's like I need two cups of coffee and a piece of lemon meringue pie. And there, there's probably a, la a level of um, artistry to the script and these these kind of bizarre um, in encounters that Loudon has that is telling of like just. Uh, he's lost in this vision quest, right? So there's probably something yeah. that I'm not picking up on, uh, but it's entertaining nonetheless. And like, there's, you're right. If they were to try to remake this and let's say, um, how it tone back some of the, like just the zigging and zagging of some, like the absurdity of this script and interaction, you're not getting the same experience. It's going to turn in, you know, it's going to turn into, it's going to turn into the second point break. Right. Oh god. Well, it's like why'd you even call it that? Call it some different they movie. Yeah, totally the fact different. that they even used the term point break was awful. Mm -hmm. So but Well, I'm I'm glad that you you went where you just went because I think that's one of the things that when I started tweeting with you was important to discuss because and I just mentioned Terry Davis and his book. So <clears throat> the Vision Quest is obviously, you know, from the Native Americans uh, a term to have a greater understanding of who you are and what your place is in the world. I, th I believe that Cooch, Michael Schofflein, uh says that in the, in the in the text of the of the movie. But while it's about a guy going to see if he can defeat this person, as I said before, when when you're wrestling, probably when you're when you're trying to become an NFL football player, that what you're always trying to overcome is your own personal fears, your doubts, your weaknesses, and to discover your own personal strength. Well, the thing that was special about the book and why everyone wanted to make it into a film was because it wasn't just about wrestling. It was about discovering something about a, a this, this girl that comes into his life about, uh, you know, uh, uh, meeting this uh, homosexual in the hotel who it, 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 as, a, as a young boy you think that that homosexuality was something that was evil and bad and a, a destructive corrosive 
thing that would destroy the fabric of, of, of your life and the world uh, that uh, what else was there that you're you know learning something about your teacher uh, learning something about the drunk that was the cook in the in the uh, the restaurant where you you know where you're uh, bus boy waiter uh, that, that that Loudon was and then he gives you that that speech about mm-hmm. Pele mm-hmm. unbelievable that that it was a coming of age in every sense and even Frank Jasper this is the really important one his opponent in the film that when Loudon Swain goes to meet him at the stadium and he's he says uh, do I know you and he says uh, uh, yeah I'm I'm uh, Loudon Swain from Thompson High. And he goes, oh, hey, it's nice to meet you. Uh, and you think you'll make the weight? I don't know, I hope so. Me too. Hey, I can't talk right now. I'm in the middle of a workout. That what Loudon learns in that moment, and if you look at, the, look at that moment again in your mind, Loudon realizes that that person is just like him, that this opponent that he wants to wrestle and, and, and defeat is just somebody who's trying to be the best person that he can, to be the best athlete that he can, and to beat Loudon, you know, who's who's making this this journey to beat him. And so all of the stereotypes, the evil things that we think exist in the world, that when we have an opportunity to, to meet those people and and uh, encounter them and learn something about them, that you the the mystical evil things the prejudices that we have dissolve and go away mm-hmm. that's that's what uh loudon learns in his vision quest and so now we have to look at the movie and how it was edited they cut the second scene with the the, the lemon pie kevin that's what we called him <laughs> the, the, the lemon pie kevin <laughs> did you know loudon is wearing uh those red Puma yes. wrestling shoes. Yes, we did know. He got that. those. He got those from Kevin. That's the second scene. It was cut out from the film because when they put the movie together, they said, "You know what? People go to see movies because they want to see Loudon defeat the evil shoot. So we can't make shoot a good guy." We have to put a scene in where he comes into the room and says, you're a bleeder. You can't hold your mud, you know, and turn him into an evil person. He can't be a nice guy. That's not fun for the audience. Lemon Pie Kevin giving giving Loudon a pair of shoes. No, cut that scene out that we don't that doesn't that doesn't help our story. Um, And the things that he learns from Carla, you know, or her coming back, she left. In the in the in the movie that she was out of his life, and he has to make that decision after he after he sees uh, that that the the scene with uh, the chef and talking about Pele. Um, that's what makes him go back into the room. Everything has left him. You know, she's left him, and he feels there's no reason to wrestle. And and it's the speech that that he he makes that makes Loudon go back in and uh, wrestle shoot. I, I hope that's clear. Yeah, no, it yeah, is. Yeah. What, no, it is. What did that second scene look like 
with um well don't you remember he, he like comes in late and he's got to get the weigh in yeah, which yeah. uh it's always yeah. weird that he's not making it and then he takes his underwear off where i'm like was that really necessary but 100%. maybe that, that it shows that's his commitment ad, that's that was an added scene yeah. actually when the, in the book you don't even know if loudon wins the match it wasn't about that it was about loudon ah. making the weight could he make the weight it didn't matter whether he won or lost it was about could he get down to the place where he could go and wrestle his opponent? One sixty-eight. That, that right? was the that was the journey. Yeah. Uh, so the scene, the weigh-in, is an added scene. Carla coming in and saying, you know, kick his ass. Uh, shoot coming in and saying, you can't hold your mud, turning him into an evil person. Uh, as I say, Carla coming back and saying, kick his ass. She was gone. She was out of his life at that point. Mm-hmm. In the original script. And in the book and in the, you know, so all those scenes were added on. They were added to the movie. So obviously you went with the flow here, Matthew. Like, do you recall at the time, were you like, uh, were you on board with it? Was it just like, all right, that's what the boss says to do. Let's do it. Or do you feel that? Well, I mean, as a young actor, you're probably just like. Uh, yeah, as a good. young actor, you have no. Yeah, you got to do what the boss is telling that's what, you. Okay, I'm just curious. Uh, the yeah. one thing that they would mess up if they remade that movie is Linda's perm. She had that massive 80s uh, big perm that you just don't see anymore. No. And the problem is if they remade the movie, they wouldn't give her that perm and the whole movie is lost because that big hair. <laughs> the, the movie dude, hinges on the flow. Huh? Yeah, dude. Well, uh, she was in... Um, dogma. Yeah, Dogma. And like, and, and the hilarious part, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, Vision Quest. Mm-hmm. Carla. Ma- Matthew. If they if they re- if they remade the movie, it'd be set in 2020, and uh, it'd be MMA fighting, and it might be a girl. Loudon yeah. might be uh, Ludine or something. Ma- Matthew, would you be opposed to coming back as as Elmo, as the chef in the background, or and you get to give the speech? I mean, it's probably well, the, the best part of the movie. I'd much rather be Elmo than Loudon's dad, for sure. There you go. Yeah. Well, the auto mechanic down on his luck, the wife left him. Like, that's a, that's a oh, whole yeah. weird deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that Pele speech that he gives, that guy was a terrific actor. Uh, he, he was he just, I, I can't think of his name. Um, he, he was also in uh, the movie with Gary Oldman and Sean Penn, uh, where they were Irish brothers in Hell's Kitchen in New York City. Um, I don't remember, um, but I, I've I, I've got to I've got to go. I got oh, okay. a nine o'clock, and we're just there. Uh, this has been really fun. Yeah, oh, you, yes, you guys are awesome. Too. No, oh, it, thank it, you, Matthew. Yeah, it's been great to you know have you take us on memory lane and kind of give us some background and some story and get to connect, man. I'm uh, I'm forever grateful for this experience. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, thank you. We we'd, we'd do it again. We'd yeah. talk about uh, we'd talk about something else. Yeah, no. Uh, hey, do you anytime. ever find yourself in Austin, Texas? Uh, I've been there one time. I went to meet Rodriguez. What's his Rod- the director Rodriguez? Not sure. Uh, the the director. Oh come on, what's his name? He he did uh, the the comic book movie with uh, Mickey Rourke and Oh, oh Sin City. Um. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Is it Rodriguez? Isn't it? Uh, Pulling it up. It's Can't Robert Robert Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, well done. Uh, I went, I've been to Austin once. I've never been for the film festival, although 
the the lady that runs it, Jane Pearson, uh, used to Jane and her husband John. They used to be my next door neighbor in New York oh. City. Oh wow, small world. Well, we're we're headquartered out here, so if you ever find your way and think of it, ping us, and we're out west every once yeah. in a while. Maybe we can. Uh, yeah, no, my my family's still all in California. Like I was just there, out there but... last weekend. Yeah, we moved out here to Austin about four years ago. Decided to sell the little postage stamp in Newport Beach and buy a bunch of acreage out here in Austin and have a ranch and uh, kind of build everything out here on the property. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good move. The most important thing, investment you can make is in a piece of dirt with good soil, a source of water like yep. a well or a river. <laughs> Got that. And, uh, Got both of those. Because because there's too much instability in the world. Well, you know, uh, that, just having like, uh, I got uh, twin girls that are little uh, that are eight, and then I got a little boy who's four. And I remember we were in our backyard in Newport Beach, and we were in John Wayne's flight path. And as I was watching, you know, getting buzzed just over and over by Southwest Airlines, I remember thinking, like, we got to go someplace that's not in the flight path. And we ended up, yeah. you know, selling our place and then moving out to Texas. And, um, you know, obviously taxes are a little bit better. And in California, uh, you get, you know, we were able to buy 16 acres and build uh, everything that you see for Power Athlete, which is uh, the company that, you know, I started. And, and you know, these guys have helped, helped me build. Um, and we just moved out here to Austin and we're able to build everything out here and really just get a, a, a bit a good change of scenery that I think is added. That's a terrific. New dimension. Good for you, man. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and Matthew, as a thank you, we'll, we'll connect with Adam, but we'd love to send you some some power athlete workout gear to to rock while you're and, still training. And then also we have a, a wall of fame over here, so I wanted to send you a picture that uh, we had printed out that we were going to put you up on our wall of fame because. Uh, oh, that's awesome! Yeah. So yeah, and thank <laughs> you right. for sending us the uh, your your publicist sent us yeah, those DVDs. Was, that was awesome, sign. But yeah, I got a picture we printed out that I thought would be killer to put on our wall. Yeah, very so, generous. With the one thing. One, it's my, it's Adam and my pleasure uh, that if you want to know more about Full Metal Jacket, I really encourage you. If you have an iPad, mm-hmm. it's like a dollar or a dollar ninety-nine. I already bought it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the diary, the, the, the Full Metal Jacket diary. Yeah, uh, the book, the book. If you can find the book, uh, that's an awesome. There's only twenty thousand of them on the back of it. There's a serial number. Um, uh, I've seen it. For twenty-five dollars on eBay, and I've seen it for eighteen hundred dollars on eBay. Because there's there's only twenty thousand. There will never be another one. So if you can track down the metal-covered book, uh, you should. That that's a good collector's item. It, Warner Brothers just copied my book, and they're re-releasing the 4K version of Full Metal Jacket in a in a, in a metal book. Oh, they awesome. copied. They they copied. It's you know. That's the flattery, right? The, uh, what is that expression? Yeah, well, um, well, I mean, I uh, flat, you know, hey, I mean, to, to be able to do something, I mean, to have that level of an iconic movie, I mean, yeah. like, like you yeah. said, like, uh, um, I really liked Platoon just for like the realism and the fact that Oliver Stone was a you know Vietnam vet and you know the the script was kind of the culmination of four different experiences and that was super realistic and then all of a sudden something like Full Metal Jacket comes in and I mean those were you know iconic movies that'll stand the test so it's great to see Matt the quote was Oscar Oscar Wilde imitation is the sincerest form of flattery there you go there you go Oscar Wilde also <laughs> said. The, yeah. the only way to satisfy temptation is to is to God. What is it? Look that one up. Uh, put in Oscar Wilde temptation. What's that quote? The only way to satisfy temptation is to yield to it. That's why I snipped the panties. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a rhetoric major at Berkeley, so I read uh, just about everything. And um, yeah, but yeah, Oscar Wilde. 
quickly to, yeah. to wrap it up. The only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Resist yep. it and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself. Mm. Looks like a good one. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you, Power Athlete Nation. Wow. Let's thank do you. it again, Matthew. We'll, yeah. we'll, okay. We'd love to. Yeah, we'd love to have you back thank on you. if you got the time. Thanks very much. Have a great one. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!